Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 72, recorded on June 13th of 2019. And, uh, you know, if you're new to this podcast, welcome. Uh, we geek out about all things photography, things in the weekly news cycle. Me, uh, Don Komarechka, and a co-host. And today, I've got a guy that uh, I've been meaning to have on for quite some time. Uh, and I've actually been on his podcast a number of times, too. Uh, his opinions are great, uh, lighthearted, and is an easy person to talk to and have a nice conversation with. Um, Jeff Harmon, how you doing, Jeff? I'm I'm doing good. I have to admit, so I've been podcasting for several years now. I'm actually a little nervous today <laughs> because the the people who've gone before me here in the co-pilot chair are big shoes to fill, and uh, so I, I hope I'm up to the task. I, I'm, I'm certain you will be. And uh, when I sent you the stories, you'd said you were already familiar with some of them. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, but before we get into that, though, I mean, what what is uh, your elevator pitch as a person and a professional go okay so i have two podcasts i'm a i i do i work on one's the master photography podcast it's a weekly show talk about new stuff but also kind of tips and tricks and and things to do um we have a, a pretty vast audience so it's it's a fun show to do and so like you said these stories we talked about um, that's where we've, we've already talked about a couple of them and, and the first one in particular, and, and it's fun. And so I enjoy that. And then photo tacos, the other show I do, it's way more of a, a passion for me. The, the photo taco podcast, it's a lot like photo geek weekly. Uh, it's not weekly, <laughs> it's monthly. Um, and that's cause that's all the time I can, I, I do a ton of, uh, of like research and testing and I tend to go over like really technical sorts of things about photography and try to talk about it in a way that the normal person can understand. So that's that's what I do. Well, and that's kind of what we do here, right? Yeah. We take uh, oftentimes some very technical topics and we have to distill it down to, okay, well, we've got all of this tech information. How do we translate the features into a benefit, so to speak, right? right uh, how right. do we make it useful uh, for people in their everyday lives? Um, and I think that's why a lot of photographers listen to podcasts. They want to get something out of it of value uh, right. to figure out what, well, sometimes what the next piece of gear they're going to buy is. Uh, but moreover, where the industry might be going, keeping their finger on a pulse of things as we do here. And uh, by proxy, you're getting opinions of uh, of us. I mean, if you call me a professional, it, this is my day job, but uh, <laughs> my opinions are not the same as everybody else. <laughs> right. For better or for worse, you still listen. So uh, I, I guess that's, uh, you know, worthy of, uh, of, of some level of accomplishment yes for sure <laughs> and our numbers keep growing I'm, I'm quite pleasantly surprised we're uh, somewhere on average between two and three thousand downloads an episode and i love when people email me uh and they say you know i, I loved your opinion on this that or um you know I, i'm just a, a listener and thank you for the podcast so thank you guys for being listeners uh, including yourself jeff i know you often uh, chime in with commentary on what we've talked about on uh, you don't chime in every week but no. i appreciate your opinions as they come oh i'm i'm happy to. it's fun i, I do listen to all the episodes yeah. Oh, good. Some of them just aren't <laughs> worth commenting on. I see. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, how about we get into the stories and Let's do uh, it. keep uh, bantering back and forth as uh, as we do. Um, the first story is we usually start with a hard news story, but this week we're actually starting with something of an editorial um, that was published on Petapixel, and it got my attention because it's got over 300 comments on it. So it was a hot-button issue for a lot of people. Um, the story from uh, Usman uh, Dawood uh, is, Canon was blinded by Sony and the quote-unquote mirrorless revolution. 
And uh, Jeff, I, uh, I hope you've read the article, or at least you're familiar with the kind of context that this is being put into. Yep. Um, basically, they're saying that Canon had everything going well for them with the EF mount. Um, there was no reason for them, especially when you're dealing with a full-frame camera, to switch into a, um, a new, the, the RF mount and all the new technology that they're building into it, that that is a huge misstep for them, and the research and development budget for that is not going to echo as a proper return on investment. Am, am I summing that up enough? Yeah, they're, they're, the author is definitely calling into question Canon's decision to do it. Um, it yeah, it's interesting. So I, I mean, I, I'm of two minds of this. Um, I, actually, three, but we'll get into all of my opinions uh, in a minute. But I, I want your initial uh, thoughts on just uh, boilerplate stuff, and then if you want to really drill into any of the specific comments made, we can talk about them one at a time. Sure. Okay. So I think I I bring just in general, I kind of bring a, a little different perspective to photography media than a lot of others. Because I'm a hobbyist, I don't do uh, photography professionally. It's not my day job. I have another day job I love very much. And what is I, your other day job? I'm an information security professional. So I, I keep so many photographers are IT pros. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, keeping the the bad guys out of websites and stuff. So I I, uh, I I help design all the controls to keep to prevent that from happening. So okay, carry on. All right. So uh, so I, I'm not a, a pro, which is kind of different because most of them in the mainstream photography media are. I also, I'm still not shooting full frame. So I've been shooting for, for several years now, and I'm a, I'm a crop sensor shooter. I do shoot Canon, um, and that happened just out of dumb luck. It wasn't because I knew enough to pick what I was getting into. But then once you get in, as a hobbyist, you're, after, you're invested. Like, you have lenses now, and switching over just gives me nightmares. <laughs> because, because I'd have to, really what I'd have to do is sell off all my gear buy and and wait until I sold it all off, be without a camera for a while, and then buy, you know, switch over to something else. And and usually it would be not equal money and I'd be sure I'd have to make up some more. Anyway, the the whole thing has just made it so that I'm been totally happy staying where I am. And and, and I've, I've used Micro Four Thirds cameras for sure. a long period of time. Uh, I shot with the GX9 for a, pretty much a year exclusively, not even a flagship camera. It was incredibly flexible and portable and uh it, it didn't let me down right uh, and so a crop sensor is not a bad thing and uh, you know it's a 20 megapixel sensor i had been using full frame sensors between 18 and right, 21 right. megapixels for my entire career so there's no uh, negative trade-off there yeah you might in certain extremes not have the same kind of low light performance as its brethren released within the same kind of product cycle but that's always a rolling target right that's always going to be improving in any class of product and if you need something specific if your job or you know whatever pays the bills depends on it then yeah there's tools out there but you don't need to just drop everything switch systems i've known people that when a new camera body comes out from x manufacturer they jump from uh y manufacturer sell everything and <laughs> invest in x system and then the next product cycle comes around well the gear they had previously now they've got the better camera and they switch again it makes absolutely no sense you're a photographer you're an artist you have to embrace that. And yeah, we all lust over gear, sure. sure and and sure. we're going to have some opinions on on this transition here. Um, but don't feel the need to dive into a brand new system just because it's there waving a flag in front of you. Absolutely. I, I've maintained, for, I've been beating the drum on my own podcast for a long time now, 
that the thing limiting my images is not the tool in my hand. It's me. That that's what's limiting it. I need. You can't I, buy a bad camera today. No, the exception of the Yashica no. Y thirty five. But uh, we'll, we'll put <laughs> right. that aside. If if you buy a camera and you take a bad picture, that's on you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and the more you learn about the camera, I I believe now since I've done I've invested a lot of time and experience. I've just got a passion for it. So I'm out there taking pictures as often as I possibly can. And, and now I, you know, progress to the point where I, I've got visions of what I want to create and, and I'm able to do it, put it together so that I, I come out with the vision that I had. And it's so much fun to do that. I love it. And I think I'm getting more out of my crop sensor camera than a lot of photographers get out of full frame, more expensive kinds of systems because of it. So, so let's talk about the reasons why Canon came up with the, the yeah. RF mount and these new uh, R series cameras. Um, I remember reading a white paper from the launch period of these that basically detailed all of the limitations of the EF uh, system, and uh, that followed through to effectively why they can't progress uh, within that platform. There's just way too much baggage. And yeah, you could have some level of backwards compatibility, and then if you've got a new camera body and a new lens, it would use newer protocols and all of that. Um, But you're still carrying all of the baggage from the late 80s when the EF uh, lenses and the EO system was born. And so uh, in order to leave that behind, for the most part, yeah, you've got the adapters, you can use those old lenses and so on and so forth, but uh, you would have to kind of reinvent the wheels. Uh, So a new mount, new communication protocols, you can do more interesting things. Uh, Canon has been patenting uh, in-body image stabilization stuff, which requires kind of a two-way street of communication much more robustly than their previous system had, so we might see that in a future camera body as well. There's hints that that might be coming. Um, And uh, they can just uh, trick things out. Uh, Innovation becomes easier when you start fresh, right? When you don't have everything else from behind. But you come into the market exactly the same as everybody else. And this kind of um, makes me scratch my head because uh, you could have done some really innovative stuff with the new platform. It's a brand new platform, right? So uh, curved sensors. You know, I thought that might be a thing from somebody with all of these new refreshes because the patents were there. Right. I hadn't seen working prototypes of the sensors. Maybe it's not far enough along yet, but that would necessitate a new mount. Sure. Uh, Or, here's a novel idea. Make your sensor 5% bigger, okay? Because everybody uh, reads about the specs, and if your sensor is a full-frame sensor that is ever so slightly larger, and if you were to mount a uh, a lens with an adapter detecting a regular full-frame lens, it would just crop in, Uh, so you just lose that little bit of extra, or you can override that setting if you so wanted to. Uh, Say if you want to do like Instagram square stuff, uh, and you don't mind having some vignettes around the corners of the frame. Um, But even something as simple as that, just just changing the format a tiny bit, uh, I think would have made people look at this, instead of it being just a, a reiteration, oh, you're mirrorless now, it's like, no, you've done something grandiose. You've made your sensor a different size. Um, that's a public perception and a marketing thing more than it is anything else. And just take a look at what Sony has done with the E-mount. Because they started with the NEX uh, cameras on that, and then the, the uh, A7 and, and A9 and all the other uh, cameras have come after that. But, uh, Jeff, are you familiar with the actual uh, lens mount diameters for all of these different options? I- 
so I know the new one for for Nikon and Canon are pretty close. They're almost exactly the same. Right, but, but here's the thing. If I bring up, I, I, uh, there's a lens mount uh, article on Wikipedia. If you just type in lens mount, you'll find it. And it's got a whole list of every single lens mount ever created. Okay. And so uh, if I take a look at um, the, uh, the Sony E-mount, uh, which is their, uh, their standard mount right now, um, the throat or the thread diameter of that uh-huh. is uh, 46.1 millimeters. Okay. Now, of course, the Nikon uh, Z is 55. The, the new Canon RF, I believe, is 54 millimeters. So those right. are uh, quite a bit bigger. Right. But Canon had the EFM mount. I mean, they still have it. Um, its <laughs> diameter is 47 millimeters, just shy of one millimeter wider than the Sony E-mount that they are capable of putting full-frame sensors into. Right. So could you have not created your entire full-frame empire in the M-mount system that had already started to be established? You had an entrenched infrastructure of, of course, smaller sensor lenses uh, and camera bodies, but you could have adapted that system in a very similar way that Sony did, because I don't think that Sony intended the E-mount to have full-frame sensors. If you actually look, that sensor is like hitting the edges oh, of the yeah. metal There's on it. There's not it's, any room. It's, it's a really, really <laughs> tight fit. Yes. Um, so if they didn't intend to do that, but they did, and they're having as much success as they are with that format, then you, you might have been able to do the same. You might not have had to have reinvented the wheel because you already did that with the EFM mount. And uh, I think the sales are, you know, moderate for that platform. I don't think that they're stellar, but it's not fizzling out like the Nikon 1 system did. Right. And And what it makes me wonder about then is... There's got to be more to what's coming from Canon. There's got to be a, a bigger story here. They're a big company. It's been around for so long. They're known for providing uh, really like fault-tolerant, good, solid equipment that's just going to work for professionals so that they, they can rely on it. And I got to think that the researchers that have been doing this, they, as, as they saw Sony and Olympus and Panasonic, all the, the mirrorless manufacturers going, they're not blind to it. They, they saw what they were producing. They saw what was happening. And I, I have to believe they were, they were prototyping things all along the way as they saw that come out. They were putting their engineers on it. And, and they, I have to believe this is a super, a very informed and educated kind of ultimately business decision, obviously. But the engineers and researchers had to have had something that was meaningful that was going to come out of this. It just has to be that way. I can't believe anything else could explain it. Then the thing that's confusing to me is the bodies that came out first, there's nothing there. <laughs> that- there there's a mainstream body that as a, as a first flush kind of product is, is never going to have the polish on it that you want. Although I know some people that use it and it's a very serviceable camera. There's Absolutely. no question about it. Absolutely. Uh, but then they come out, okay, we're, we're waiting, we're waiting. When are you going to hit us with the big guns? And then the EOS uh, RP comes out. And, you know, we, we wanted the, the high end. We, yeah. we didn't want to take a step down. You know, show us your muscle. Show us. And it's got to be coming. You're right. You know, Canon, with the company that they are, maybe they just want to make sure that they're crossing the T's and dotting the I's, sure. making it as good as possible uh, as uh, as solid where people can't poke and find, you know, the, the, the cracks and, uh, and say, okay, well, we're going to have an issue in this particular tiny little area in these obscure scenarios. And then that's all the internet talks about because the internet loves to talk about that stuff. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, they'll jump all over it. If you make a mistake, it's <laughs> they're, they're, you're going to be known for that mistake. And, you know, maybe there's stability issues because they do have that reputation as being a, a very solid tool provider in a camera that is going to work. And maybe there's issues with that. Who, who knows? That that was what was confusing to me. As I talked about this on my own podcast, we, we did reviews of the, the R and the RP when they came out. Just according to the specs, we didn't have any hands-on. But it it was confusing, especially because a lot of it seems self-imposed. The RP in particular, it seems like they are very deliberately making some decisions to disable things in software when the actual hardware is probably far more capable than what it was they released. And it just confused the heck out of me. Like, what are they doing with these cameras? Take a look at what Magic Lantern has done with the 5D sure, series yeah. of cameras, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. there's so much extra potential in that hardware that Canon is either uh, not putting in the research and development uh, to utilize, but one could argue if Magic Lantern can do it and then offer it for free, I think. I, I, I haven't downloaded their software in a long time. I don't know if there's a paid option for them, but um, to, for my opinion, that seems almost like a passion project for whoever's engineering those kinds of things. Uh, and then we come to, like, uh, even I shot with the 1DX and the 1DX Mark II for a number of years, and I've said this on the podcast before, there's no intervalometer in those cameras. <laughs> These are the yes. top-of-the-line cameras. <laughs> uh, you know, you you pack every feature you possibly can. I don't care if you have to li- license patents from other people to put that feature in the camera. Oh, you want to sell me this $200 dongle that does that as an added accessory? I'm not biting. It's not going to happen. <laughs> it, it's so confusing. And then the the, the whole purpose then, of the, or the, what the author's pointing out in this article, is he he's suggesting that they missed the mark altogether. Like, they, they had the Canon D Mark IV. They had the chance in the Canon D Mark IV to do something there. The, the 5D Mark IV, right? Or, sorry, 5D Mark yeah. IV. Uh, to, to do something there that would have recaptured that professional market, that they could have stemmed the tide made it so that, that those professionals that were jumping to Sony and making very public kind of statements in, in a lot of like mainstream professionals and, and had them stick with them. And, and they missed the boat on being able to do that. And that's the part of this article that I kind of agree with. Because I've seen Canon do, like you just talked about, the intervalometer not being in there. There's all kinds of ways that it seems like they're artificially limiting these cameras. They also didn't update them very frequently. And, and that's a world that everyone is accustomed to today. We have our computers that get updates frequently. We have our phones that get updates frequently. Apps, everything. It's, it's this constantly evolving, updating world. And they don't ever do that where Sony was. Now, that slowed down a bit. But they were really introducing new firmware updates all the time that had new functionality that was being brought to that platform. And I got a feeling that Sony there. is a sleeping giant here. Yeah. You know, they, um, I know how much technology that they have, and I know how much they're working on behind the scenes. They, they make sensors, and they make all of the tech that goes into even cameras that aren't manufactured by Sony. Right, so right, right. Um, if they want to make a splash in this market, they kind of want to see what everybody else's cards are, and then they're going to hit us hard with right. something that will be drool-worthy. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a Lumix shooter, and yeah, I'm, I'm sponsored by Panasonic for that, but uh, I try to have my opinions uh, as unbiased as I can. But but even what they're doing with the uh, the L-mount and their full-frame cameras, um, you know, they, the, the um, 
the S1R, which the camera that I'm shooting with on a regular basis right now, uh, it's great, very high resolution, great performance in low light. Uh, I was showing you uh, uh, off the air before we started recording it, uh, an image that I'll be posting later today, which I shot at ISO 12,800. And uh, it was great at that. Uh, I mean, yeah, of course, you're going to have to clean up some noise uh, at that level, but it was performing very, very nicely for me, well within the spec of what I needed. Um, now, what do we need as photographers? Do you need the latest and greatest gear? Well, sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. Uh, and I can argue that you really don't need to be replacing your camera or your lenses on a frequent basis. Right. But if you want to jump into a new system, um, all the manufacturers have them now. So you might jump ship because it, the entire platform has changed. And if Canon isn't able to entice people to jump into that platform now or within the next year, then they're going to miss people making that transition because there's, a, I, I assume, a larger number of people that are looking at all of these options because they're all new, weighing their considerations and saying, okay, well, uh, I'm coming up from a smaller sensor like you are. Uh, if I was going to go full frame, I'm not going to go EF at this point right, because right. Canon's putting all their eggs in the RF basket. Uh, but if I'm going to do that, well, I mean, why don't I go with Nikon Z or with the L mount? And then that gives me choice of different manufacturers for the camera body and lenses. Right. So uh, there's so many balls in the air right now. If Canon can't catch these uh, uh, these transitionary purchases, then it's going to be hard for them to keep the momentum going. It's going to be super interesting to watch and see what happens. It, that That really high-end pro level body has to be coming and yeah. they, they better they better nail it yeah well and it's funny too and, and i'm going to use this as a transition to uh, uh to the next stories but um uh, it was was it earlier this year or last year canon released the uh, the new version of the 70 to 200 f 2.8 uh image stabilized lens and it was interesting to see that come out because it was the exact same optical formula it was the exact same uh, image stabilization. They put different coatings on it, sure, but to me that wouldn't really necessitate the release of a, of a new moniker on the product. My thought was that uh, Canon, in engineering that uh, that new lens, was maybe forward-thinking in certain ways. Maybe the, the RF was coming and they wanted to make sure that lenses like that uh, would be better compatible with the, uh, the, uh, the RF system through an adapter with whatever communications might be necessary. Or um, the possibility of uh, them running out of parts, right? Because if you... Uh, if you're making a new lens, you're going to order, uh, you know, a million of every component or whatever, whatever the number is right, yeah. from your suppliers, uh, microchips and capacitors and everything else. But if it's a really good selling lens and you run out of parts and you go back to the manufacturer that supplied that to begin with and they say, well, we're not making that anymore. Uh, okay, well, how do we get around that? We've got to re-engineer this lens, but from a servicing perspective and from a warranty perspective, having lenses with uh, decidedly different insides because they had to be sourced from vastly different parts makes that a bit of a nightmare so that they might come up with a new version of that. That is my segue into a, uh, an announcement from uh, Fujifilm this past week. Uh, this is uh, an article on DP Review, uh, basically just echoing the press release from Fuji, uh, saying that Fujifilm plans to bring back uh, the Neopan 100 Acros black and white film by the end of the year. I don't know if it's Acros or Acros. I never know what these things. Yeah, I don't but, either. <laughs> um, Fuji is 
producing a professional black and white film again. Um, they say, uh, basically, to sum it up in the press release, that there was diminishing demand for the uh, uh, the black and white film when they had discontinued it previously. And if you have something that you engineered, uh, I'm not even sure how long ago this was first available, let's just say it's a decade or more uh, for the exact same emulsion, then the chemicals that you would have had access to back then, they might not be as readily available. Or if they are, there might be like newer environmental concerns, uh, which is why, you know, Kodachrome disappeared. Or maybe they're just much more expensive and it's not feasible uh, to, to produce them on that particular scale. I know that was true uh, when I was working in uh, Black's photography uh, camera store. They had uh, some of the Fuji Frontier, uh, really cool machines that would use lasers to expose um, actual photographic paper that's light sensitive and then pass it through a traditional chemical bath to produce a hybrid of digital and analog prints. And they had a really nice feel to them. Um, But print volume started going down and not just from uh, the, the one specific specific store but overall right so the chemicals became much more expensive and then harder to get and then the machines started breaking and we couldn't get parts for them and uh so then they switched to a dry lab after that and and then they went out of business shortly thereafter <laughs> i don't think the two are related i think the whole industry was just changing yeah but, right <laughs> um the, the fact is that uh they couldn't keep the existing emulsion going and keep it profitable uh for people to be buying at a reasonable price so re-engineer it using either modern chemicals or just different chemicals that are still readily available today and reintroduce that into a market where they say, and I love the fact that uh, they said that uh, thanks to consumer feedback, particularly from millennials and Gen Zs who have become the new film enthusiasts, the market is changing once again. So uh, film has the resurgence from the hipsters, right? (laughs) Yeah, apparently. (laughs) Apparently. Do, Do you shoot film at all? I don't. I don't shoot film at all. That was that was a very long time ago, and it, it, it. I didn't have my interest in photography sparked by it because of the difficulty with it. I, you know, I had fun, but it, it was. I didn't go serious with it at all because of that. It, I was a hobbyist, and that it just doesn't make as much sense with the costs to uh, to play around with it as it does with digital. It's just way more appealing. And I'm a computer guy anyway, so that makes it makes way more sense for me to do it. And, you know, I, I get the opportunity to, uh, to have some very thriving online communities associated with our podcast. You know what I don't hear from them? is the, the need for film. They just, <laughs> nobody's talking about this at all. So, okay, maybe there's some kind of rising generation, the, the new generation right now, who's kind of having a, a little bit of a resurgence, but that might just be like, because they've never seen this before. Like, wow, yeah. look well, at you know, I've seen, um, I was at Michael's recently, the, the art store, art and craft store, and uh, they're selling typewriters now. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) And and so, okay, well, I remember hearing a a news story a couple of years back, uh, maybe longer than that, that the um, the last manufacturer of typewriters stopped making them and uh, they were selling out whatever last inventory that they had. Well, apparently somebody has decided to make new ones because uh, there's a market for it. And if you want that tactile feedback of putting a, uh, you know, a a letter crunched against a ribbon into paper uh, because that makes you feel more real then sure, great, good for you. There are still many reasons why you might want to shoot 
film uh, if you want that tactile experience if you want uh, to to feel more immersed in the creation of the image rather than just pressing a button and having it show up on a screen uh, it's the same reason why people will listen to vinyl and I, I mean I don't listen to vinyl right I, but I have no problem with those people that do and enjoy that experience sure um, I have some old film cameras that I'm so glad that I can still use and uh, some of them are uh, you know 35 millimeter, and so the uh, the, the uh, Acros 102 is going to be available in 35 millimeter and 120 formats. They state that, uh, and this was interesting to me, that it'll go on sale towards the end of the year, um, but it will be available in Japan. And then only in other markets if there's going to be a demand for it. So uh, let's hope that there is a demand in Japan and then it comes to, uh, to North America and European markets or wherever else they're planning on, uh, on selling it. I have no idea how easy it would be to get film in South Africa today. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, it'll end up on eBay. No matter where you are, you'll just have to pay the price to get it to you. Right. Um, and I, for one, I, this is great. Uh, I've got a uh, a 120 uh, camera sitting on my, uh, my my NAS here. This is a 3D camera that shoots 120 film, and you get like six shots on a roll. Uh, and that's, again, just some other quirky interests of mine. I'd love to take that and always have that to be useful because I don't think anybody in their right mind would ever make and sell a medium format 3D uh, digital camera. That's just... It's not going to happen. Right. So I, I'm glad that I can keep this alive. And thank you, Fuji, for offering some black and white emulsions for the hipsters and for anybody out there shooting film uh, as an experience. Again, right. you're not, you're not going to hear a vocal minority of uh, vinyl listeners uh, as loud as you will hear the film shooters out there in the market. <laughs> Very true. Uh, <laughs> Yes. But they aren't. Uh, well, I, I suppose they are making more vinyl. I saw a statistic that uh, it was it was from the UK, but uh, that last year they sold more vinyl records than they did CDs because nobody's buying CDs anymore. Right, it's right. a completely dead market. All digital. Yep. Um, and uh, piggyback this uh, is uh, uh, is Kodak is now testing uh, or will start to test in July uh, Ektachrome, which they just relaunched in thirty five millimeter format uh, into the one twenty medium format size, um, which. I, I kind of like slides more than I do negatives. Uh, just they have a, a much more uh, real feel when you look at the actual image. You don't have to guess what it is. You don't have to try and invert it in your head. Um, and I've seen even some large format. Uh, uh, a friend of mine had a 4x5 frame of, um, uh, I forget what it was. It just, it capped, I think it was a city scene, um, sitting on his windowsill in a frame. And the the four by five film itself was the artwork to put on display. It was really beautiful to see it that way. Um, so maybe there is some some room for that. I was talking. Uh, this was in Buffalo uh, to some former Kodak employees. Uh, they had long since retired, uh, but they were uh, involved in uh, film production. And they basically said that when you try to re-engineer something like this. Um, the equipment that you were using at that time uh, that has now been lying dormant and, you know, is covered in cobwebs and what it is going to take you so much effort to revitalize that technology. Uh, you're not going to be able to recreate things from scratch. You're, you're going to have to go back to those old machines because the cost just isn't there to re-engineer them. Um, and to get them working again with substitutions because some things aren't available anymore uh, is a nightmare to say the least. Oh, so yeah. the fact that Kodak is actually going through that process right now to bring back uh, 120 film for Ektachrome uh, 
uh, I mean, it's commendable. The fact that there's, they, they assume that there's enough of a market for that in the Kodak professional film industry. I, I view it a little bit like an endangered species. <laughs> they're, they're, they're Everybody very, is making every possible effort to save the last vestiges right, of, right. uh, of of this industry, and uh, uh, profit be damned, it must continue. <laughs> and it's a worthy cause. There, there are good lessons to be learned from shooting film. I think if if someone took the time to go and and do that, the what they'd learn would be. A, a lot. They'd learn a ton about photography by, Shoot film by going once, there. Right? Sure. I mean, at least once. Because sure. what you'll learn in that day of shooting film will be so much more valuable than 10 days shooting digitally. And so we, we need this. We need these these companies to, to try to keep it alive. I don't know that it's economically going to make sense, and we'll see if, it, if it, can, it can survive. But I'm glad to see them trying. Yeah, yeah. And uh, like I said, I've got some fun old tactile. You know what I like more about the film experience is not so much about the film. It's the cameras. Yeah. Is using those vintage cameras that have all the knobs and the dials and you don't get all of the, uh, I don't want to say cheating, uh, but all the modern conveniences <laughs> oh, yes. sure. um, of, okay, well, you know, it's going to figure out your exposure for you. Uh, that's, I don't need that. Um, and seeing the immediate results and knowing how to possibly change your exposure, framing and focus, etc. So uh, having the, the minimalist approach from a camera perspective, uh, no Nobody's going to make uh, one of those film cameras digital uh, unless you're modifying the, uh, the the former cameras from the past. And they've done that. It was, yeah. um, yep. uh, uh, I forget, the I, I did a Kickstarter. I'm remembering uh, and, the same um, story, but uh, I can't remember who it, it was, was either. <laughs> uh, something about uh, back. I remember back what was one of the words in there. Yep. And it would basically replace the film back uh, with a, uh, where the film would be with a another focusing screen. And then you would use some mirrors and another camera attached to a Raspberry Pi to image that focusing screen where the image was supposed to be perfectly in focus and use I'm back. It was I'm back. Uh, And uh, that just looked like this big clunky thing on the bottom of the camera, reminiscent of when the very first digital cameras came about uh, from Kodak that were based on Nikon and Canon film cameras. And they basically bolted a hard drive on the bottom of it. I want to buy one of those cameras. I'm sure they're inexpensive on eBay. Uh, but just to have that in my collection to say, look how far we've come. <laughs> of course. And you would do awesome with it, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I would actually use it. Uh, I've, I've been uh, uh, trying to, to think, how far back can I go in terms of a digital camera to still get meaningful results that could be enjoyed on social media? And you don't need high resolution. A lot right. of the stuff that I post online uh, is between one and two megapixels at most. And I'm sure if I post something one megapixel or less, it would still be enjoyable. Yes. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, t- uh, talking about uh, uh, images, photography, pushing limits, and uh, and everything else, uh, I always like to bring up stories of, of ethics uh, into that mix. And so, uh, from Petapixel, this image also has a ton of comments on it. Uh, wildlife photo contest winner disqualified over elephant's ears. Okay, so this is an African Geographic uh, uh, contest, I guess, that has announced that a photographer who recently won its 2019 Photographer of the Year Award has been disqualified due to photo manipulation. Okay, um, you've read the story, Jeff. I did, I did. Yep. You, want, you want to lead this one? So, <laughs> this story confuses me, and, and it's, 
we have seen a, a surgence of these kinds of stories. I, it seems like at least every month there's a, yet another photo contest where the declared winner uh, is now unthroned, <laughs> dethroned, and a, a new winner announced because they, the judges, they, they, you know, they didn't know something about the photo. They didn't detect the thing in the photo that disqualified it. And, oh, we're, we're so sorry we didn't pick this up, and now we have to change who won. I just it it seems I don't know it it especially this one in particular because there's so much about this photo that is obviously doctored there's so much adjustment and that's so much gone of on. it was completely acceptable by them yeah and so <laughs> um, in in the basically uh, the, the the quotes that I can read here the judges did not uh, pick up on the error during the judging process although they did comment on the other obvious post production work on the image <laughs> um, and so if you look at the image. It's uh, it's overcast, uh, at least in the foreground. There are some light rays coming through the clouds in the background. But being an overcast image with nothing to even cast a remote shadow around, there's clearly vignetting. Yep. Uh, there's c- clearly an enhancement of texture and contrast in the image um, that are setting the entire mood of the image. They are completely changing the mood of the frame to be much more bold and much more dramatic than it would have originally been. And so to continue on, uh, the objective is to remain faithful to the original experience and never to deceive the viewer or uh, misrepresent the reality. Well, I would argue that the edits that he did to the environment around the elephant completely misrepresent the reality of the scene in that core, but they let that go. Absolutely. So it was disqualified for the ears. (laughs) And so this particular elephant is a well-known elephant. Uh, He's got a name, Tim. Tim. Yeah. And so the image is called Tim in the uh, uh, Mbosali National Park in Kenya. And uh, so he's got this little rip in his ear. Uh, it kind of looks like a banana. And it uh, it's very noticeable in many photos of Tim. Uh, you can look at that and pretty much identify which elephant you're looking at by that little tear in the ear. And if you take a look at that same ear uh, on, uh, on, on this image here, it's not there. Right. It's missing. And so they said, okay, well, there's manipulation. That that little tear isn't there. This guy doesn't have his same character. And so we carry that forward in our judgment. Now, the, and this is where things get really interesting for me. Because um, the, the entrance explanation, uh, which is, uh, where was it? He basically said that he was cleaning up the image at right, the end of everything. Right. And it was just a mistake uh, that, uh, you know, as you might be removing a dust spot or a blemish on somebody's face or whatever else, that something else might just be removed. Um, but here's what gets even more interesting to me. That's not true either. No. Because if you look closely... Uh, the tear is supposed to be on uh, on his left ear, which would be camera right in the photograph. Yep. But if you look at his opposite ear, that exact tear is on that ear. Right. As if the image has been flipped. But it but hasn't. It ha- no. It hasn't. Because, because the trunks. his tusks are yes, of different tru- sizes. Yeah. Right? Yep. And so the tusks of, of the right size are in the right place. They have not been flipped, but... Th- for some reason, maybe he swapped just the ears around? Yep. Okay, so if you're flipping the image, does that make it unrealistic? I don't <laughs> think so. If you're flipping just part of the image? The, the, if, if you're representing that tear in the ear as being a character from this particular elephant, if you move it from one ear to the other ear, would that disqualify you based on the total amount of manipulation this image has already had? I don't think it would. Yeah, it's it's completely confusing to me why 
this is so obviously manipulated and I guess it's unfair because we're looking at it in an article that's pointing it out. So, but I, I have to believe if I would have seen this image without the article that I would have said, wow, they, they did a good job with it, but this is a very manipulated photo. Uh, I noticed, and to me, I think that the, the, uh, the photographer, uh, Bjorn person, uh, he should be disqualified because his commentary on how he fixed up the image was inaccurate. Oh, yeah. Because if he was not declaring the fact that he flipped the ears or whatever that is, that definition actually would have probably saved him here. If he admitted to doing that and they saw the tear, yeah. then it might have saved him. Or at least it would have given me more respect for what I'm seeing here. And I say, no, well, we can see the cracks in your reality and uh, and we're going to point them all out to you now. There's there's so much evidence of manipulation here. It it led me to think. Well, is that background even real? Did was that background <laughs> yeah. even with the elephant? I the, it's totally conceivable that this is a composite now. And they yeah he took some picture of the elephant, and for composition purposes to kind of balance things out. One of the tusks is much longer than the other, and it kind of is nice to have the ear looks a little bigger on the other side than it was naturally. So, so switching that over, that adds some strength to the composition. And then, uh, and then having this compelling background in there, it, the whole thing could have totally been staged from you know, beginning to end, other than the, the tiny elements that probably did come from the real elephant. So if I'm in a scenario like this, if I'm taking a photograph that I would consider to be uh, potentially even uh, award-worthy, I'm going to be shooting raw. And sure. I'm not sure if everybody does, but I think the majority of photographers will be. Here's my suggestion to photo contests, whether it be African Geographic or anybody else. Number one, request that all of the entrants, if they are shortlisted, supply a, uh, a raw version of their image. This does so many things. Number one, it, it, it proves that they took the photograph right, right. because they've got the copy of the raw files. I don't know of anybody that shares their raw files around. Uh, number two, it can show uh, the level of manipulation from the original camera captured image to the uh, to whatever was submitted, um, not just in terms of how things have been dodged and burned or the other basic adjustments, which I'm totally fine with a lot of that stuff. Uh, but when you start to clone, when you start to flip and manipulate those pixels, it, it either needs to be declared uh, to every degree possible, or you need to have the original raw data for the judges to make their own decisions on how much manipulation has been had. I don't think that's a big ask. Right. I, I think that it should be a fairly easy form to say, hey, uh, congratulations, you're shortlisted. Uh, you know, upload to, uh, you know, send us via WeTransfer or whatever other service you want to use that's free, uh, your raw file, and uh, you will be considered for judging. Right. If I somebody doesn't send it in, well, they're disqualified. Sure. That's yeah, I don't I, think that's unreasonable either. I, I think either. that's fine. <laughs> For those contests where you have those kinds of rules, I, this image is still a stunning image. It's still really nice. I love looking at it. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of art. But to claim that it's not been totally manipulated is obviously not true. And in this case, the, the rules in the contest meant that disqualifies them. Um, so let me ask you this, Don. Is there merit in having contests where there are rules about manipulation? Uh, yes, I, I think that if, if it's a, a contest that has to depict a particular narrative um, that is real, and if that's the purpose of the contest, uh, something related to photojournalism, etc., then yeah, those rules serve a distinct purpose. Um, if it has to be something that captured that is um, 
that that is uh, real, like when I do water droplet refraction photography, right, I'm using droplets as little lenses and they refract light. I'm not photoshopping flowers into those droplets. I'm letting physics do. do its work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's great. But there's a lot of uh, contests that state the images can't be a composite, period, bar none. Uh, so what if I focus stack? That's technically a composite. So that disqualifies uh, a lot of my macro work, including my snowflake work, because that's uh, that's been focus stacked because that's a composite. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm back and forth on that. Uh, I would say that if you are compositing information, uh, you should reference all of your original material, uh, every single piece that went into it and uh, and how you made the, the finished product. Make sure that the process of creating the end piece is as clear as possible to anybody judging the image. Um, and that might be information overload in some cases, but I think that that would help the judges do their job and understand how good of a visual artist and storyteller you are beyond just calling you a photographer and how how much of what you actually photographed was real in situ and uh, whether or not you manipulated things before you took the picture would be impossible to tell uh, like that what was it like an anteater that was yep. probably like a stuffed yep. dummy that looked like it was moved <laughs> into an actual position uh yeah i mean there are certain things that yeah sure you took that picture in camera that's great but did you move that stuffed anteater to make that picture happen that's another question uh <laughs> that i don't think you could cover adequately in contest rules you know subsection 93 about moving stuffed animals around um i don't think would uh, would appear anywhere useful and and i do so i still appreciate the art i still appreciate the image that was produced here but what, where you get in trouble is when you, you don't tell the truth about it, that's where there's a problem. That's where ethically, at least for me, that's where the lines would be drawn for me. I don't have any issue with, with someone producing, creating an image like this. It's beautiful. Go yep. ahead. Go make the art uh, and, and share it. And, and that's great. There could even be like really great things that come about from sharing it. You may be able to get funding for elephants. Who knows? I don't know what the, the, you know, what the purpose of this was for. But... Uh, the the problem is when you lie about it. You just you can't. You've got to be. You got to admit it when it's been manipulated. And I remember um, this was uh, the famous Afghan girl photo by Steve McCurry. Oh yeah. And uh, you know published by National Geographic uh, as a cover, one of their most famous covers. And uh, there was a comparison between it and later versions of it that were rescanned from the original negative. And it's funny because um, if I look at the, the original, the, the, the bare negative scan versus some modifications that Steve McCurie had done afterwards when he was uh, releasing prints of it, but also back to the original National Geographic cover, you could tell that some of the fabric in the background, like uh, she's wearing this red uh, you know, uh, hood and, or shawl or whatever you want to call it, um, uh, clothing. And some of the fabric in the original cover looks like it had been repaired uh, in, by whatever editing process that they had used. And if you're talking about representing the scene, the fact that that fabric wasn't brand new, the fact that it had started to wear out, but yet she was still wearing it, it shows that she might have been impoverished. It, I think it's very important to the narrative. Sure. And by trying to cover that up because it's a blemish on the photograph, misrepresents the reality of that. Sure. So National Geographic... Uh, I mean, uh, I'm sure African Geographic is, a, is an affiliate in some way. Um, uh, it's somewhat being hypocritical here. I, I feel like I want to point that out. I, I don't want to be like a total curmudgeon about this. Um, but uh, image manipulation did not just come into existence in the digital era. Right. right. No, I, I completely agree with you. 
and that's that's where we have issues. Uh, there's, I, I think a lot have, of stories have come about recently from photojournalists who have taken photos in the past and had massive success with the works and, and provided value uh, in, in a lot of ways, only to discover later that there was a fair amount of manipulation done going back a long time. Right. And uh, this is the world that we live in. It and is. And we have to continue to live in this ever-changing world and, uh, and, and fight the good fight, I suppose. And so here we are uh, trying to do that on Photo Geek Weekly. <laughs> but before we get to our final story, um, Jeff, how about we uh, just make a quick mention again of where people can find you online, rather than doing this at the very end when people have stopped listening. <laughs> um, sure. So uh, where are your podcasts and where can people connect with you? You can find it in any of the popular podcatchers. So the two, the names of both of them, it's Master Photography Podcast and Photo Taco Podcast. You can find any of those. Just search, search in Google. We'll do it in anywhere like that. But they both have sites. So there's MasterPhotographyPodcast.com and PhotoTacoPodcast.com. Why the heck is it called Photo Taco Podcast? <laughs> this is a question I get asked all the time. There's, there's new listeners uh, constantly, and they're like, why is this his name? It, it goes back from a long time ago. Uh, I started the podcast with a friend of mine, Jim Harmer, and and he um, he had the Improved Photography podcast, and we've converted that to Master Photography. It's where that came from. So Jim Jim had a, a time where he was looking for uh, like a permanent co-host, and he was doing auditions. I got on the show with him, and, and we did a, an episode. He didn't pick me, which you know was hurting my feelings. But but uh, but he said, but I, what I want you to do is I have an idea for starting a new podcast that I want to be in. I'm going to start a podcast network, is what he was telling us, and uh, and I want you to do it. And, and I want to do a show where there's technical tips that are shared every week. And um, his idea was to have it be a short format. So like five to 15 minutes, have it be really, really quick. So, and then his idea was photo tips in the time it takes to eat a taco. And uh, so that was what photo taco came out to be. It very quick, very quickly changed because I couldn't cover stuff meaningfully in five to 15 minutes. <laughs> that just didn't work to have the tips truly be meaningful. So I was, I was like splitting up my tips between three or four episodes. And that's just not helpful to anybody to, to have to do that. So I just, we decided to, to kill the, the short format thing, but I kept the name because we already had it going. So that's where it comes from. There you go. Uh, <laughs> thanks for uh, clarifying all of that because it was quite a bit of a mystery. I mean, I already <laughs> knew the answer, but for our listeners. Um, okay, let's get into our last story um, from Petapixel. NASA will let you shoot photos on the International Space Station. Wow. Hallelujah, this is fantastic news. We can all go to the International Space Station, Jeff. You're raising your hand but, saying, pick me, pick me, right? Uh, but we'll need $50 million. Oh, um, so about you that, you do have a Kickstarter going. Hey, you know what? If if that Kickstarter gets to fifty million, screw everybody that submitted <laughs> funds and pledged for that book. I'm just going to space. That's right. And I think we would all understand if you did. Yeah, I, I wouldn't do that. Um, but I, th- now that you mentioned it, uh, I want to say thanks again to everybody that has contributed to that um, for my macro photography book that will be out in uh, you know in December of this year. I'm just astounded. We are, as we record this, just about hitting the two-week mark. Uh, and what are my totals now? Let me just pull them up. Uh, almost $84,000 Canadian. 
uh, of the original $30,000 goal. So I've got some quotes here for embellishing the cover uh, and for higher paper quality and thicker paper and everything else. And it's not just upgrading the paper cost that would be uh, considered then. It would cost more to ship. And I already have everybody's pledges for shipping. So we have to have a buffer for that type of stuff as well. Um, As things stand right now for that project, um, Kickstarter takes 5%, and then there's 3 to 5% for processing fees, so there goes up to 10% right away. About a third of what's been contributed is all for logistics, that's shipping, uh, and that might uh, go higher depending, again, if there's upgrades. And the rest of it, 100% of it is going into the print production. Um, so I'm not seeing a penny of it myself at this stage. But if you want to help the project uh, and you want to get a copy of the book at less than retail, you'll find the link to that in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com or at doncom. But uh, let's get back to the story uh, uh, from that uh, brief aside. Uh, So NASA has announced that it's opening up both tourist and commercial activities to the International Space Station, which I think is a bold move. It's not something that's entirely new, though, because I I remember hearing back. um, uh, Do you know who Richard Garriott is, Jeff? I have not heard of Richard Garriott. No. Richard Garriott, uh, also known as Lord British, is the the main guy behind the Ultima series of video games. Okay. And he was working on a project, a uh, wonderful massively multiplayer online role-playing game uh, called Tabula Rasa. Mm, this right. was maybe, oh, it must have been a while ago, like not quite 10 years ago, but it kind of feels that way. Uh, anyhow... It had a ton of promise, and I think it might have been mismanaged or something. It was canceled before it could really get its, uh, uh, you know, uh, get its stride. Uh, I played it; I liked it, but I haven't been playing games in years. Uh, I miss those days. Anyhow, so he was behind that project, and as part of that, uh, I think that maybe part of the mismanagement of that project is that he got to go to space, uh-huh. uh, pro- possibly promoting the, that particular video game, but. Um, I found an article uh, on uh, time.com and uh, and he says that uh, uh, who is it? Uh, Owen K. Garriott, I think it was his dad, had been a, an astronaut as well. But uh, now at a reported cost of more than $30 million, uh, Richard Garriott would become the sixth private citizen to travel into orbit. And this article is from September 25th of 2008. So uh, I'm not sure exactly when that flight was scheduled, but we're in about a decade window there. And $30 million, you know, doesn't really account for all the inflation that would get you to $50 million in a decade. Um, But this is not a new thing. They've been making exceptions to that for quite some time. If that was 10 years ago and he was already the sixth private citizen, uh, there might have been some since then. I haven't been keeping my finger on that. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but... There's a lot of people in the world that have $50 million to burn. I mean, I, I don't. <laughs> uh, but a lot of celebrities and actors and uh, musicians and what have you, this could open up the door for those people, to, not only just to go to the International Space Station, but that money would probably help fund the science and the research and the things that are going along with that. Uh, you don't get a lot of outside influence besides government funding into these kinds of projects. And I'm not sure if it would really legitimately offset them being there, uh, but at least it's a step in that right direction. But at $50 million, could you not just arbitrarily set that to 
65 and then now you're just <laughs> right. making more money because if somebody's got 50 million dollars to go into space they're willing to pay 15 million dollars more uh you know it's it, you don't have a lot of elasticity in this price here it's not like the uh you know the cost of groceries at one grocery store versus the next <laughs> if it's 10 cents a pound cheaper for potatoes at uh at no frills versus you know the uh the higher end grocery store you might no if you got 50 million you probably have 65 million <laughs> sure sure yeah, and what a great what a way to spend it. That that would be an incredible thing. They do say, you know, there there's lots of restrictions to this obviously. There's all kinds of tests you have to pass and you've got to go through the rigor of training for being able to, you know, survive the trip. That's a, an important aspect of this. I also mentioned that uh, NASA is going to pocket $35,000 a night for when, for how long the astronaut stays the private astronaut right so stays. you can stay up to 30 days but for every <laughs> uh, for every night you sleep on the space station which i'm assuming they mean uh earth 24 hour cycles right, because right. the international space station goes around the planet what like 17 times in a day yeah. that would wrap up pretty quickly um so yeah so every night $35,000 as a, a hotel stay <laughs> right <laughs> right and that way it was, oh man so fun and then can, and they're not even saying this is, you know, for photographers. Obviously, this is anyone who's got that kind of money and can pass the tests. They're they're welcome to go and, and pay to do this. But the opportunities, it you know, one would assume you'd be able to take your a camera and and uh, get some once in a lifetime kind of shot. Exactly. Well, speaking of that too, I, I've been considering something as the the funds for the book wrap, uh, you know, roll in. If I hit some obscene number, because we still have uh, thirty one days, I think, left in the crowdfunding campaign. I set it for a forty five day campaign. I might do something a little crazy. Um, there is an airport uh, in Hamilton, Ontario, that has a lot of classic aircraft uh, from uh, you know the, the World Wars and, and everything else. Um, they have one of two uh, airworthy, there's only two of them in the world that will still fly, Lancaster bombers from World War II. And you can buy a seat on that for an hour and a half long flight around the Toronto Harbor front and back. It costs $3,500 to have that seat. And I don't think I'd make that money back on images that I had taken, uh, you know, from that particular flight. I might. I might find a market for that, but it's it's kind of a risky return on investment. Uh-huh. Uh, so if I'm drastically overfunded and I make the book as perfect as it could possibly be, I might take a trip on a Lancaster bomber. Just, oh, it sounds just like because. a fun trip. Not, not quite a trip to space, uh, no. but uh, that would be fun uh, uh, all the same. What so. kind of, uh, is this like you get a window seat? What, what does this plane look like? Uh, oh, look up uh, the, the Lancaster bomber. It has like four engines. I mean, it was it's a bomber. It's massive. Uh, and it's not a passenger aircraft. You have the pilots, you have the bombardiers, you have the rear gunners. Uh, and they say you can have about four passengers in each uh, in each flight. And so I don't know where the passengers would go. Hopefully right. not like strapped in in the middle of the fuselage where you can't see out the window. I would want to be in like the bombardier has this wonderful glass, uh, you know, view of everything down below. That's right. where I would have to be if yeah. I was. I don't. I don't even know if that's possible. There's probably safety regulations that say <laughs> no. There's no possible way in hell you are going to be in that position in this plane unless it's firmly on the ground. Um, but we'll see. I haven't even looked into it. I just uh, I remember that from a few years ago, and I checked the other day, and they're still doing flights. So yeah, that would be Anywho. fun. I, I, I digress. That was our story about uh, going to the International Space Station, and my goals are a little bit more closer to Earth. <laughs> Realistic, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
All right, let's get into the picks of the week. Jeff, I know that you've listened, so you know that there's a pick of the week, and I, I hope you've prepared something. Yeah. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recommend a, uh, a utility. So that I'm I, a super computer geek, and uh, I love software that makes a difference for me as a photographer. So I'm going to recommend something primarily more effective in windows it does they i just saw it this morning i didn't know it was even there it's also there for mac um, but it's a utility that i'm using to copy my images from my memory card to my computer um, and it does it faster than the native operating system does and it will do checksums which are really important to me i want to make sure those images are fully copied and reached their destination without corruption. You're I've transferring had... trillions of ones and zeros, uh, yeah. often in a matter of seconds. And so if one zero becomes a one, that, that entire image could be unreadable. Right? And I've had it happen before, and something that I don't notice until much later, like I've already erased the memory card, and, uh, and I'm in Lightroom at some point and say, what is wrong with this image? There's something that's off. Or sometimes it, it's more obvious quicker because it just can't read the file at all. But, uh, but I've had issues with it in the past. So, uh, so the utility is called TerraCopy. That's T-E-R-A copy. And uh, it's, it's uh, free for most uses. There is a pro version that's a, a mild 25 bucks to license it, which I've done just to support the, the developer. And uh, you, on Windows, you can actually override the copy hooks. So when you do uh, copy and paste, it's going to say, would you like to use TerraCopy to do this? And, uh, and I love it. It's it's really nice tool to be able It'll to do It'll only ask you to do that once, or does it ask you every time? Uh, you can even pre-do it. Oh, sorry, you can pick. You can decide how you want it to, to right. behave. So it's really cool. It's, it's a super, uh, a really nice utility. So TerraCopy, and uh, that's my, my pick of the week. Well, and a lot of people think that, uh, you know, the, the connection between uh, the hard drive and the computer, like if it's an SSD and it's a, a PCI Express bus using the non-volatile memory express protocol, et cetera, you'd get the fastest possible throughput. And then, of course, the technology, you've got all of this cross-point stuff from Intel, you know, that gets even faster and so on and so forth. Um, but you forget that the operating system has to handle that. It has yeah. to be the thing that's actually, you know, directing what files are going to go where and how fast they can do that has an impact on how fast it actually happens, regardless of how fast the transfer occurs. Right. And there's right. some other really cool techniques he, uh, the developers pulled into. He, he's leveraging the system utilities that are available to, to kind of analyze. He, he figures out what the, the files are like that are in the list. That's why he can get it faster. He changes the strategy that's going to be used for the copy based on what it is you're copying, because not the same strategy won't be as effective on all things. So it's really cool, a really cool utility. Cool. I'm going to check that out myself. Uh, always happy to save time doing things. Yep. Um, all right, my pick is something that uh, I don't use on a daily basis because I don't do like in-person transactions on a daily basis, but I've been a user of Square uh, for quite some time. And I was talking to a colleague of mine the other day, and he did not realize that Square now had a, a, a chip and tap reader. Mm -hmm. So if you're not familiar with Square, it is a, a no monthly fee service. And traditionally, you would plug into your phone's uh, headphone jack, uh, a, a little mag stripe reader, and you could swipe a credit card and you could take your transactions from that. And they had a, a fee that was, uh, you know, pretty well on par with everybody else in the industry. Sure. But when I do like an art show, I might be using uh, the Square reader 
like for that weekend and maybe like if i've got a private workshop going on or if i've um uh, selling a, a private piece of artwork that somebody is coming to me personally to buy uh, then you know they'll they'll tap their credit card or whatever else and it's really helpful to have this where i don't have to swipe it um i've got greater security on those transactions where the card uh uh, definitively has to be present. It's far harder to copy a chip or that, that RFID tap. And uh, if you have a Square account already, get one of these things. It's 59 bucks. Uh, and so with, with this in my head, uh, 59 Canadian, it's probably cheaper uh, in, in the US. Uh, it's Bluetooth connection. So if your phone doesn't have a headphone jack, uh, then you can definitely still use this. And uh, it is incredibly convenient. I charge this like once a year because it's only on for brief periods of time and the battery just lasts forever. So mm-hmm. um, from a business perspective, if you want to take payments, when I first started, Square wasn't in Canada and I had to sign up with Global Payments, I think it was. And there was a $30 a month fee, but that fee went closer to $50 a month if you didn't hit a certain number of sales in that monthly period. So I was paying often closer to $50 a month for a service that I would use predominantly one month out of the year. And it just did not make any sense whatsoever. So I switched to Square. Uh, I've been using and loving them ever since. And uh, this new, uh, you know, U- uh, not USB, but um, a Bluetooth, uh, you know, wireless reader. This thing, it it is a lifesaver. And, uh, you know, for the cost of doing business, it's almost nothing. Get yourself one of these things. If you haven't uh, signed your life away to any of the other major uh, vendors for payment processing, uh, it just seems like the better route for me. Very good. It sounds awesome. Yeah. I haven't done that yet. Yeah, well, and you know, you can get a Square account with just their regular reader. I, I believe they were shipping their regular Magstripe stuff for free. They were. Yeah, I and have that. So, I have that. Uh, and and that would uh, be, like, especially if you are a, a hobbyist and you might have an occasional transaction you might need to process, uh, then just always having that in your camera bag, in your back pocket, wherever you put these things, uh, would be useful. But for the cost of stuff that I spend money on uh, to making it easier to collect money uh, for the work that I do makes a ton of sense. And that's uh, that's a drop in the bucket. Uh, So make sure you have yourself well equipped to take people's money when they want to pay you. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I've had issues, too, where mag stripes will wear out. They don't necessarily work. But, uh, you know, the the chip on a card I've never seen fail. So uh, make sure you you get all that's owed to you uh, with the uh, square reader uh, for contact and chip and it also does uh, something that you can't do on the regular uh, uh, square uh, mag stripe thing is you can take interact flash so i think it has a, a limit of a hundred dollars but if somebody has a debit card and they want to use that not a credit card and they want to pay you up to a hundred bucks you can take that as well so that opens up some new doors for you all right well that uh, that ends things for me uh jeff thank you so much for being here it's been great to have you on your opinions have been greatly appreciated again um the photo taco podcast is the one that i want to point people towards because i'm going to be on your next episode that's right uh so if people are listening to this uh i might have this out either later today or tomorrow when we're recording if you go over if you type photo taco into google i'm sure you'll only find <laughs> jeff Probably. Uh, and uh and if you're looking for that you'll uh you'll see me and jeff having a great conversation about macro photography if you're at all interested so jeff again thank you for being here it's been a great conversation now it's time to get out and shoot Music.